Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, and today's guest is Ben Bennett, the founder and CEO of beauty brand incubator, The Center. Welcome, Ben. Nice to have you today. Thank you so much for having me. Ben, you know, I have to say, um, I followed your work for a number of years, and, you know, I feel like I've been so intrigued by, obviously, your creative ambitions, what you did at Hatch Beauty, your own creative firm. And it's been a while, actually, since I've had the chance to talk to you, although I was like hunting you down via emails and friends. So I would love to just hear a little bit about um, kind of how you got started in beauty and what made you find this space interesting and intriguing. Goodness, this is... um... (laughs) Uh, it's, it's a, I guess, a long story. I'm going to try to make short. I've been in the industry for a long time. Um, I started my career in the mid '90s, actually, in the apparel industry, and um, you know, I was a young creative person who thought that I was going to be a fashion designer. Um, I was born and raised in Ohio, and um, is. You may know, or some folks may know, the Limited Brands is based in Columbus, Ohio. And um, Limited, in the, especially in the mid-90s, was a very big force in retail and, and specialty apparel. Um, and if you lived in Ohio, you were very aware of the presence of that business there. I was really fortunate um, right out of school to get what was... I think a lot of people thought it was a dream job, which was um, you know working with a really renowned fashion director there, who was really known as a cool hunter and a trend forecaster. Um, and you know he took me under his wing and really became my mentor. I don't know if he considers himself my mentor, but I do. And um, Ben, who is know, this? Who are you talking about? His name is Jamie McFate. He actually is still at um, at Limited Brands and um, is just really a, a, a brilliant uh, fashion executive and um, and has always been um, a really renowned you know trend forecaster and cool hunter. Um, you know, he took me under his wing. I think I was twenty years old when I started, and um, and I just really fell in love with it at the time. The internet wasn't what it is today. If you were a trend person, you had to get on planes and get, you know travel to cities and photograph kids in the street and visit stores. Uh, and that was my job. You know, I did that for um, three years. It was exciting. It was uh, glamorous. <laughs> you know, I, I thought it was glamorous to be able to travel around the world and to um, to look for what things that I thought were cool to um, to look for common denominators of what was you know happening in industries that I thought you know would inspire some of our fashion brands and to be able to bring that information back and and you know work with the different businesses at the time there were 14 apparel businesses um, to see like how can we take a trend that's happening out there like, chartreuse, you know, that might be um, emerging either in in prestige fashion or in the automotive industry. And and how does that work into, you know, our brands? It was um, an incredible experience. And, it, you know, it took me around the world many times. And, and, um, and it really taught me as a young creative person to think about who the customer was of each one of these brands and each one of these retailers. Because at the time, um, you know, for those people who don't know, you know, Limited had 14 apparel businesses, and and this was when we all shopped in malls. And many times, those businesses were 
competing with each other, you know, for the same customer. So, <clears throat> you know, it really taught me how to look at a trend that's happening in the space and and really think about who the specific customer of that brand is and how does that get incorporated into that brand's assortment in a unique way. Um, you know, I couldn't have, I don't think I could have drafted this kind of plan to be a person who works on multiple properties at once, but it turns out that has just been the path of my career. I've always um, worked on multiple brands at the same time and found um, the benefit of, of doing that. I ended up moving into beauty when Limited um, launched Bath & Body Works. And, um, you know, I never... I'd never considered, uh, you know, developing fragrances or personal care product. I looked at Bath and Body Works like this was another specialty business um, that I was brought in to help influence seasonality and trend into seasonality. What would that mean, season after season, to look at what was happening culturally in the world and how we could incorporate that into the things that we were developing? Ben, tell me a little bit about, you know, how incorporating trend and incorporating, you know, uh, inspiration or aspiration maybe was different um, in beauty than it was in fashion and your experiences in fashion. You know, I think in fashion, um, especially because we were a, we were specialty retailers, it was easy to look at what was happening in high fashion. It was easy to look at what was happening in Europe or what was happening in Asia. Um, you know, it's, it's funny to think about it now because we are such a global community and we can see what's happening, um, you know, on a runway in Milan or in Paris immediately. But in the nineties, if you, if you recall, you know, as consumers, we didn't have access to fashion shows and the publications, you know, Vogue and Bazaar and Elle, which were our U.S. publications, they would send photographers to shoot runway shows and then hold those images until it was time for them to release their fall fashion, you know, issue. So, um, you know, consumers were really kind of kept in the dark of what designers were doing, you know, next. Uh, we didn't have, uh, you know, brands uh, live, you know, airing online or on Instagram, their runway shows so you could see it in, in real time. It was just a different world. Um, you know, so thinking about trend and and for specialty apparel, one, it was very easy for us to look at high fashion, but we were, you know, I was looking at... Um, at kids in the street, you know, I was like shooting, you know, Harajuku kids and, you know, um, in Tokyo and Japan, I was, uh, shooting, you know, French kids, um, in Paris. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in Italy, you know, just, uh, photographing the way that men dressed, you know, older Italian men. Um, and we look, we'd bring back images and talk about, okay, how does this, Get incorporated into into our brands, so there was there was always a lot of um, a lot of different references that we were looking for for inspiration. It's it's just so different today because it's so easy to now look at these references online and to see things happen in real time. But at that time, you had to be um, in the place where it was happening, and you had to you know do whatever you could to collect all of that 
data and bring and bring it back. In in beauty and and specifically in at Bath and Body Works, when I joined the business, the organization was looking at um, the spa industry, you know, for influence. And pretty quickly, we realized that there was um, that there was an opportunity to really build the business around fragrance. And um, in the team there, you know, saw that there was a real connection and personal care to fragrance and fragrance is incredibly powerful, as we all know. Um, and that was the start of, you know, what at the time was called the the marketplace, the marketplace where, you know, was all of those, um, those, you know, body cleansers, body moisturizers, scrubs, you know, and all of those different, different fragrances that, um, you know, have been really uh, a cornerstone of Bath and Body Works. And, and, um, you know, I think we saw an opportunity to look at seasonality and fragrance to develop limited edition fragrances to bring consumers back. And, you know, at that time, there was a real ravenous appetite for this type of product. You know, uh, a body wash was still a relatively new skew at that time. People were using, you know, bar soap and uh, were, were buying their personal care products at the grocery store or at the, at the pharmacy. Um, you know, a body wash was something that, you know, maybe wealthy people used when they went to a spa. It wasn't uh, such a common, common item. So it just, you know, Bath and Body Works opened up a whole new category of personal care for consumers and created, um, at that time, almost a frenzy around um, coming in and experiencing the new fragrance and purchasing the limited edition. And, and um, it was just such an exciting experience. I was, I was young. It was um, an enormous amount of work. You know, I think when I started, there were 50 doors. When I left, there were 1,600. Um, you know, it became a billion-dollar business. And, you know, still today is just such a powerhouse. And I realized that, that this was a category of product that I felt a real connection to. Um, you know, my mother was a beauty lover. Um, and, you know, I grew up in, in Ohio in the middle of the country with a single mother. And, um, you know, a lot of our quality time together was me sitting in the bathroom watching her get ready to go to work. And, um, she is, was and is a gorgeous woman who loves, um, you know, who loves fragrance, who loves, you know, makeup and, and, and loves doing her hair. And because we had so little time together, she worked two jobs. This was our time together. And, you know, when I went to Bath and Body Works, I realized like, this is, this is kind of a, a meaningful category for me because I have such, you know, great memories uh, of just spending time with my mother while, while she was getting ready. And, and it also, I, get, I think I learned how important the category is to people. Um, you know, when I have people join my organization and I talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, I tell them, like, this is, I, 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 I've discovered this, there's a reason for, for me being in this industry. And it's because I really believe that these items that we use on a daily basis, they may seem simple or they may, may seem trivial, but they're they're really important to how we feel. And, 
when those items are no longer available to us. You know, we forget to buy, you know, that toner or that moisturizer or that fragrance. Um, it really changes the way we feel throughout the day. Um, you know, so these, these personal care products are, are really meaningful to uh, how confident we feel. And, um, you know, I say all the time that sometimes just that three minutes in the shower, drawing the curtain, you know, the fragrance from your shampoo or your body cleanser might be your only period of time to yourself. You know, if you're a mom who has kids or if you're somebody who's busy, who's rushing to work, this might be your only time that you have a little bit of a moment for self-care or a moment to to yourself. So these, um, you know, these products become really meaningful. And I just fell in love, you know, with the category. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a beautiful story. I mean, obviously, when you speak about your mom and when you also speak about what that what Bath and Body Works, you know, meant to so many people back in the 90s and what they still mean to people today. I mean, you're right. Like it is still this cult brand that created a fervor around fragrance and spa and made it accessible. Um, Ben, you know, you mentioned a second ago that you kind of always worked on multiple brands and um, which I think is so interesting. It's something that I've always enjoyed doing myself, you know, in my reporting career. Um, But, you know, tell me a little bit about how, you know, you took that experience and then maybe parlayed that into Bennett Creative, which was your branding agency, and then Hatch Beauty with Tracy Holland, um, which was the brand incubator you were working with um, prior to this. Because it seems like, I mean, I don't know if it was strategic at the time, but it definitely seems like there's a through line in carrying over that limited experience in these two other ventures. Sure, sure. Um, You know, I can't say that it was by design. I think it was all kind of by chance. And I think we all probably experienced that in our lives. But, you know, when I was at, um, when I was at Bath and Body Works, I had always intended on, um, on working with multiple clients in addition to Bath and Body Works. But Bath and Body Works became such a uh, monster. It was such a beast. I was, you know, working, you know, 18 and 20 hours a day sometimes. So, um, you know, after I, I was there for four years and after, you know, doing it for four years and it just becoming such an explosive business, I I felt like, um, you know, I, I was part of a great team here that was, um, that just built an incredible business. And, um, you know, maybe it's time for me to, you know, start working with some other you know, businesses. I uh, was based in Columbus, Ohio, um, and decided that it was time to shake it up. I was still young. I was 28 years old. And, um, and I thought, okay, I either need to move to, to New York or I need to move to the West Coast. And, and ultimately, I, I decided to move to the West Coast because it's where I thought kind of all the interesting things in beauty were happening. Um, you know, at that time, there were a lot of the kind of legacy businesses that were courting me um, and wanting me to move to New York. But I felt like the younger, more interesting businesses were ha- were coming out of LA and San Francisco. And, um, and I just decided I was going to take a leap of faith and, and move to Los Angeles. And um, when I got there, because I had worked in retail and I think I had built a bit of a reputation amongst large retailers of being a young guy who uh, maybe knew what women wanted to buy next. I, um, 
I pretty quickly had some large retail clients who were apparel businesses who were looking to get into beauty. So one of my largest clients um, right out of the gate was uh, Gap Brands. And, um, and, you know, I developed a team and the team and I oversaw all of the fragrance, color cosmetics, and personal care development for, for Gap, Baby Gap, uh, Gap Kids. Um, we worked on Banana. We worked on, on Old Navy. Uh, it was pretty exciting. So a lot of my clients at the time were apparel businesses looking to kind of dip their toe into into personal care. Uh, eventually, that then rolled into um, brands who were wanting help, either repositioning their brand or developing something new. Large CPG companies. I, I worked with Unilever and 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 J and J um, on developing um, you know new brand concepts for them. I worked with multi level marketing companies. I really kind of com- covered the the gambit, um, and and we also worked in every category. So hair care, nails, skin care, um, color. What was unique about my agency was um, we not only had a branding um, and design arm, but we also had a product development and R&D arm. And, um, you know, my clients would tell me that that was unique, that to have that under one roof. To me, it felt logical. Um, you know, that's the way I worked with teams when I was at, at Bath & Body Works. And I felt like if you're going to, I always felt like if you're going to build a brand, you need to have um, a thread that carries through a point of view from formulation, fragrance, to packaging, to branding, to marketing narrative and voice. Uh, there needs to be, you know, one hand throughout all of those different arms of developing a product and a brand. So to me, it was it was logical to have all of those, you know, in, in my agency under one roof. But, um, you know, I discovered that it was, um, that it was rare. And I think that's why a lot of, a lot of clients liked working with us because we kept that all together. I'm fascinated by the beauty brand incubator space. And, you know, it's something that, you know, you heard about, you heard murmurings about, but until you're actually in the industry, I don't think you really understand the nuts and bolts of it. And I think it's so surprising, you know, if I was someone, layperson who wasn't in the industry, to hear that like a J&J or Unilever or Gap is hiring an outside agency to do all of this for them. So for you, you know, when you were getting these calls and getting approached to, you know, develop brand new brands and have a say at these major conglomerates, what was that like for you? I mean, it, it kind of takes the veil off a little bit about what companies are really doing themselves and what they aren't, right? Yeah, yeah. I think if you're not in the industry, it is, it is surprising. You know, if um, if you were, if we had, you know, executives from L'Oreal or or Unilever here, you know, on our on our in our conversation today, I think they would tell you that that they know what they do well, and they know what they don't do well. And incubating a new brand or developing a new brand is. Um, is challenging. You know, it's, um, when you think about the machine of a large CPG company and the, the processes and the, the strategy that is put into 
to globalizing a brand and really um, and turning it into a, a, a household brand. It's a different DNA than, um, you know, than the kind of young scrappy risk that you have to take to to try something new and the willingness to to um, be nimble and to be flexible and to um, and to shift. That is um, that's my favorite part of the business, and and I know that I'm better at that, and my team is built to be better at that than than um, you know than the long term growth of a business. I you know I tell people that um, this is the advantage of of doing this for a long time and, and of age. I think you know you really through your career you start to understand what you're good at. I tell people I'm really good at at zero to 50 million in revenue on a business. Um, and, you know, around that $50 million mark is, is when it's time for me to identify somebody who's, who's good at the 50 million plus, um, because that's not me. It's a totally different mindset of, um, of what you need to do and how you need to think about your business to, to take it to that level. So, you know, you, you had asked me, how did like Bennett Creative roll into you know the this brand incubator space? I th- I think the term incubator is um, is relatively new. You know, in 2010, I took my agency and merged it with um with another business to create Hatch Beauty, and I can't tell you that we we didn't use the term incubator to describe ourselves. I don't think we knew that's what we were doing. You know, we were um, we were approached by some large retailers who wanted us to develop brands in partnership with them. And, um, and that was different than, this wasn't a private label business. It wasn't a store brand business, but it was like truly developing brands and for us to manage it and take it out of their four walls. Cause I think like a lot of the large CPG businesses, large retailers understand that within their organization, they can't incubate and develop a new brand. They have, you know, there's too many stage gates and too many cooks in the kitchen and, and they have to focus on being, being good retailers. Um, so I think our first major, our first major brand was a brand with, um, with the actress Selma Hayek, um, which was, a. uh, a brand that we developed with CVS. It was called Nuance. And that was a, um, it was an exciting opportunity. It was a multi-category brand. Uh, we were, we had developed products in hair care, skin care, color cosmetics, nail, um, body care. And um, it was hugely successful. And, you know, CVS was thrilled. Selma was thrilled. It, it, it put a lot of eyeballs on us. And then from that point on, it just kind of, you know, Hatch took off. Um, you know, it wasn't until 2015 that the term incubator started being thrown around, you know, with us. And at the time, there were there were some businesses on the East Coast in New York um, and, and businesses that I just have such, you know, great respect for. Mesa, um, I listened to your podcast with with Dev from uh, Luxury Brand Partners. I think Luxury Brand Partners are just, you know, best in class at, um, you know, at developing brands. They've just done such a phenomenal job. We were really, um, Hatch Beauty was really the um, kind of premier 
brand platform on the West Coast. And, um, and I think the way that we did it kind of helped inform a lot of what some of the new incubators are, you know, are want, wanting to do. It was super exciting. And we, um, we just had incredible growth. And I think we realized that there's, there's just an opportunity for more of these types of businesses. Ben, will you tell me a little bit about how this kind of space has changed? Because you're totally right. Like, you know, Mesa, luxury brand partners, yourselves are like, you know, best in class examples of who does this. But now there are so many more coming to market. And I think that your philosophy has really changed too. Like, obviously, what you're doing now at the center versus what you did with Hatch Beauty. You know, I, I read a quote from you that said, you know, you wouldn't necessarily do a specific um, retailer line, an exclusive retailer line. I think what you were talking about, um, the Selma line with CVS. And, you know, I think that was a very, it was an older model, right? You know, Mesa did Drew Barrymore and Flower Beauty and, you know, and now it seems like people really want a different experience. So when you were thinking about like the center specifically and what you wanted this evolution of a brand incubator or an investment arm to look like, what were you looking for? It's funny that there are things that we, that we developed at Hatch that um, that I think you know people who shop in those retailers you know see that what folks don't see are the twenty other brands that were developed that never made it to market or you know went out and were tested and for some reason didn't get fully realized and um, you know what what I had done at Bennett Creative and what we were doing at Hatch Beauty you know I was really a hired gun to develop brand IP and I was you know, selling that brand IP. If it was a brand that we didn't retain ownership of, it was a brand that I was selling, um, you know, to large retail partners or large CPG businesses. And, and um, you know, I w- I'm good at what I do. So, you know, we, we did a lot of those. However, what was always challenging for me was letting that brand go. If we were developing f- formulas and packaging and and putting together trademarks, everything that you need, and we were passing it off to one of our clients, we then didn't have control of how how was it managed? How did it get to market? How was it communicated to, you know, to consumers? And what was the relationship like between that brand and, and the consumers? We had to really stand back and and either watch it work or watch it watch it fail, and in many times, once it was um, out of our our control, you know, I would say, oh gosh, you know, this is this is what we would have done if we would have kept control of of, of this brand. So, you know, I think a lot of the large retailers who are developing and trying to grow their own brands, uh, you know, would say that you start with best of intentions of developing the brand outside of their four walls. But eventually, if it's brought into their organization, it's going to start to shift and it's going to start to be treated like a store brand, inevitably. And um, and I just felt like I don't, that's not something I want to do. I'm a brand guy. Um, you know, I think that even though I I build multiple brands, I won't, I won't build something without a reason for being. You know, I'm a big believer in, um, and in identifying white space on a shelf. Meaning, you know, is there a consumer who 
is um, underserved? Is there a way to improve this solution for this problem? Can we improve the experience? Can we offer this thing at a better price point so more it can reach more people? Um, I think growing up of modest means in the middle of the country, I have a soft spot for um, you know for folks who live in middle America who who maybe don't have uh, uh, an enormous amount of money. But I, I think that people deserve to experience beautiful product and, and to be able to get that at a great, great price point. So that's a real passion of mine, being able to reach a lot of people and to, and to give them a better quality experience. And that's, you know, informed what we do also. Tell me a little bit about the brands that have come out of the center so far. You know, obviously, you know, Make relaunched under your purview. Naturium is a new brand that people are excited about and it's gotten a lot of traction as well. What were the two spaces that those brands were filling in your mind? Well, Naturium was um, was first. And I think that really, like right at the beginning of the center, we knew that we felt like there was an opportunity to develop a a brand that utilized natural ingredients, but also utilized tried and true um, skincare ingredients for consumers who were really passionate about skincare. Do it with really luxury quality formulations and real experiential formulations, meaning cosmetically elegant um, formulations, and doing it at a great price point. Um, being a former trend, you know, watcher, maybe I'm still a, a, a trend watcher. I um, was fascinated by the way that consumers were hunting for skincare products on Amazon. You know, if you think about, if, I'm sure you're an Amazon shopper, we all are, whether we want to, want to be or not. If you think about how we shop for products on Amazon, um, you know, consumers don't put in drunk elephant vitamin C serum they search vitamin C serum. You know, in my organization, we, we try not to use the word clean because we think clean has, um, it doesn't have a, a single meaning. And I think a lot, of, um, a lot of the industry is kind of pointing to it saying, okay, we need to, we need to you know, put some guardrails around, around this because it's being used now in such a broad way that it doesn't mean anything. Um, but I would say that Naturium is really a brand that that was was developed with intention. Our formulas are all developed with intention. Every ingredient that are in those formulas are developed with intention, and and um, and we were wanting to offer these really efficacious products at a great price point. That was the real key. You know, I'm maybe this is my former retail background. I'm a I'm a tester, and I'm a big believer in. Um, and trying different things. So, you know, what a lot of people don't know is that Naturium was on the market under a different name where we were putting products out on Amazon, just seeing, you know, how do people respond to this serum? How do people respond to this ingredient? Um, and I, I, I kind of believe in kind of beta testing a brand 
you know, for a year out there without doing a ton of promotion around it or putting a lot of marketing dollars behind it just to see what people naturally gravitate towards. And we were in uh, beta mode, I guess, you know, for Naturium, um, which at one point it was a different name. We had a trademark issue and, and then we ended up changing the name to Naturium. But it was, you know, the beginning of 2020, around March, uh, we brought on a, a PR agency and we thought, let's do kind of a soft PR launch and just see how the press, you know, resonates with the brand. Um, at that time, I was talking to cosmetic chemists and to dermatologists about being the, um, being a partner in the business with me and, and really being the face of the brand because I don't put myself in that role, you know, for anything that I develop. And, um, and I was, you know, in the middle of a lot of conversations and, one day I get an email from um, a woman named Susan Yara, who is a well-known skincare influencer. And, um, you know, she sends me a note. This was sometime at the beginning of April, I think, saying, I received this package. I'm blown away by these products. I can't believe that these are at such a great price point. Um, you know, and, you know, can I talk to you? We, uh, you know, got on a phone call. This was right at the beginning of COVID and we were getting to know each other, you know, over these phone calls. And she told me that she was, had been working with a, a Korean company on her skincare brand. And because of COVID um, things had kind of fallen apart and she was, you know, wanting me to work with her on bringing the Susan Yara skincare brand to life. And, you know, over many weeks of conversations, which turned into many months, you know, she would, you know, say to me like, hey, I really like this thing that you're doing, but I think that you should change this language. Or, hey, I love this product, but, you know, I hate this dropper. You have to change it to a pump. And it was, you know, incredible for us because we were still in a mode of trying to figure out like what you know, what is the right DNA for this brand? And what are we, um, what are the things that we can, can fix before we really go broad? And, you know, organically, at some point I said to her, you know, I don't, I'm not really interested in developing Susan Yara skincare with you, but you have so much insight. I feel like you've already given us so much direction on Naturium. Um, and you, and she genuinely loved loves the loved the product so much. I think at that time we had six formulas. Um, you know, would you consider you know partnering with me on it? And that was you know how that was kind of the beginning of a, of our partnership. Tell me how that maybe is a little bit different because obviously Susan is very well known in you know on YouTube and on Instagram and all of that with what you're doing with Carrie Barber and Mate because Carrie is definitely like you know a beauty it girl in a way but she is a little bit more behind the scenes and and I'm wondering how that kind of relationship developed and Mate developed because you know what we're seeing now from the brand which is skincare focused and you know this really cool like branding that was always historic and, and a legacy brand. Um, it's not makeup, which is what mm -hmm. make was known for before. Mm -hmm. Make is different. You know, make has, uh, has an edge. It um, was 
at the time, I think it was very forward. And I think what we're doing with it now is taking it very forward. But I felt like it needed a tastemaker. And that is, um, you know, maybe different than somebody who's, um, you know, who is an influencer in, in, in social media. And I just kept coming back around to Carrie Barber. You know, I, I knew Carrie, um, you know, she was an, an art director for, uh, for Violet Gray. And I, kn- I knew that she had worked at Sephora and at Glossier. And, um, you know, I followed her on Instagram. She and I developed a relationship in social media because I, uh, I was looking to hire her for, to, uh, art direct a photo shoot of ours. And we had just developed a friendly relationship. But in our brainstorming of, you know, who would be the right person, I just kept saying it would be somebody like Carrie. It would be somebody like Carrie Barber. And, um, and just one day I just decided to, you know, call her up and, and, um, you know, I invited her to lunch and, and we started talking about the concept. And, and I felt pretty strongly that if, um, you know, unlike Naturium, where I was willing to invest in that brand to, to test it and get it going before we identified who my partner was, I felt pretty strongly that with Make, I wasn't going to acquire the brand if I didn't feel like I had found the right partner first. And, um, you know, that was kind of the beginning of our conversations, you know, around, you know, us partnering together. Um, you know, I think Carrie had to spend some time really thinking about it. She had a very successful consulting career. She had a lot of brands who, um, you know, were wanting to work with her at the time she was working with Augustine's Botter and You Beauty. Um, she was still working with Violet Gray. So this was a big leap of faith for her too. Um, but she was also a longtime fan of the brand. And I think, you know, pretty quickly we were daydreaming about like, okay, what would it mean, you know, if we were to partner together and buy this brand? And, and it was so forward at the time, like, where would we, we take it? And that's, you know, it's been a lot of fun. Ben, tell me a little bit about kind of your your strategy around indie brands and and developing them? Because you sec- mentioned a second ago, you know, you're really good between the zero and the 50 million revenue mark. You're not so interested in, say, the next unicorn brand, if there is going to be a next unicorn brand. And I'm just wondering what that kind of specialization offers you and also what it offers maybe to the investment arm of the business that the center also has, correct? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I honestly, I think a lot of it is just... Um, is just growing up and understanding, learning what your what your weaknesses are and what your strengths are. Um, I've had I've been fortunate to have enough experiences through my career to say, oh, I did this well, or oof, yeah, I did not do that well. And, and maybe there's a lesson to be learned there. I really, really love the early stages of a business. I think you know what a lot of people might be. Um, fearful of or what they get nervous about the you know the risk taking um the need to um to be flexible and to be fast is my favorite part so i i you know i always joke that i love the wild west you know period of of a brand i like the kind of fast growth period of the brand and i like being able to develop something and to be able to see whether or not um, in the early stage, does this resonate with people? You know, is it sticky? Um, have we 
have we reached the the group that we hope to reach? Did we solve a problem, you know, for an audience that um, has had, you know, this longstanding problem or not? And if and if we don't, then how do we take it back to the drawing board and, and rework it? Um, it's just my favorite favorite part, and I think that the team that I've built around me, many of my key key people at the center are folks who were with me at Bennett Creative or folks who are with me at Hatch Beauty. So I have a very experienced, you know, organization of, of people who like to work, you know, in this space. When I was at Hatch, you know, we went to, um, there were a couple periods of time where we went to, out to market and met with a lot of private equity folks and met with um, a lot of strategics. And, and I can recall multiple conversations where we sat with executives from L'Oreal, from Unilever, from P&G saying to us, we can't do what you do. Um, you know, we're, we're, we can acquire brands and we can, you know, turn them into billion dollar businesses. But the beginning portion, like the incubation and the starting of a brand is something that's really hard, hard for us to do. Um, you know, so my takeaway from that was, okay, well, what you enjoy doing and what you're good at doing, there's a need for it. And, you know, that's what I decided to to build my business around. Ben, last question for you. You know, some would argue that there are too many indie brands launching every single day. And I don't really think that that's going to stop. But in terms of like a differentiation point and what brands are going to get to that 50 million point or, you know, after working with you get to a unicorn point, like what do you think the the DNA of those brands need to be? Because, you know, you know, for sure, they're digital for sure. There's an influencer. Sure. It's skincare, you know, but what really resonates from your perspective and will resonate? You know, (laughs) there's. There's a lot to unpack in that because this is such a, I think, a really topical discussion. You know, this idea that um, the market is saturated and there's like, and there's so much that's coming, right? Uh, you know, I talk to people all the time who will say, Ben, I, I really want to launch a brand, but I just feel like there's so much out there. And, you know, do we really need another one? My answer is always yes. You know, I think that, you know, the, the barrier for entry of, of developing and launching a brand has never been lower. Um, you know, I think anybody now has the opportunity to do it. But the, the name of the game now is retention. If we have so many consumers who are real triers of beauty now, I would say I'm one of those people too. I just, if there's something new that launches, I want to try it. You know, so I'll buy it one time to try it. But the challenge is how sticky is your brand and how sticky is that product? And, and I, I tell my teams here, I tell the founders I work with, you don't really win until a consumer purchases your item a third time, fourth time, fifth time. That's when you know you have something good. Um, it's not a first time buy because we don't know why. Priya decided to buy that, you know, new serum. Maybe she found, you know, $20 in her pocket. Maybe she just got her, you know, her tax check back. Um, that's a gimme. It's, it's purchase three, four, and five is when you, when you know you've done something right. You know, there's a lot of chatter right now that, um, that there, that the market is saturated and that there's too much and that, that people should be using less and brands should be, should be producing less. 
And, um, and I disagree with that. I think that I think the, the industry is self-adjusting, meaning the items that resonate and the items that are worthy will stick around and those businesses will flourish when consumers lean into them and buy them. And the ones that don't, um, where sales drop off, eventually those businesses go away. So I, I think that it's, it's self-adjusting, self-regulating the, the amount of brands and products that are out in the space and consumers really dictate that. Um, you know, the idea that the industry should be doing less or producing less to me doesn't make sense because what we're doing is we're creating jobs, right? We are, we're impacting the economy and being a person of color. And I am, I'm, a, I call myself a dark Asian. I'm Yom Thai. Um, I think it is irresponsible for, um, folks who are not in an underserved audience to say there's plenty out there. You know, there's, you know, there, there's plenty, you know, for you out there. Like we don't need another skincare brand or we don't need another hair care brand. If you're not a part of an audience that feels like, you know, there isn't enough representation for me or there isn't a product here on the shelf that I can point to without having to mix these three things together, then I don't think that you have the right to say that. So, you know, this is a, a part of who I am. You know, I, I'm drawn to, I'm drawn to female founders um, because I think that female founders, you know, have not been given the same platform that male founders have. I, I think it's changing and I'm thrilled about that. But if you look at my portfolio, a lot of the brands I invest in are, are female led. I'm drawn to gay founders. There is a different DNA to the brands that are, are developed by, by gay founders and developed for gay audiences. And I'm, I'm drawn to people of color. I'm an investor in Bread, the hair, hair care brand. I'm an investor in Amicole, um, you know, the new melanated skin cosmetic brand. And I'm, and I'm very proud of that. You know, I think that there are really brilliant people who are saying there are things that are missing from this shelf. And there are people who are, have not been taken care of. And that's what I want to do. And it, it, if there are opportunities like that, I want to be a part of it. Ben, that's so good to hear. And I think a lot of our listeners will think so too. Thank you so much for being here. It's been so wonderful talking to you. Oh, thank you, Priya. I appreciate it. And I really enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning into the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Tune in next week for another episode. And if you know someone or more than one who should be listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, please have them subscribe. Subscribe.